Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Gardner, a nutrition scientist and professor at Stanford University. We'll be talking about healthy eating fundamentals, a non-diet approach to weight management, weight loss, and disease prevention. We'll also be talking about the psychological side of eating. So what are the things we can do to make sure that we actually enjoy our veggies and choose them rather than choke them down? Dr. Gardner has been in the field for over 20 years and involved in many human interventional trials. The one he's best known for is the 2018 Diet Fits trial, which compared low-fat and low-carb dieters. Dr. Gardner has served on many different committees and boards, from including the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, and much more. He's also a passionate and engaging communicator and teacher and instructor of several wonderful courses in nutrition at Stanford University. Let's dig in. Hello, Dr. Christopher Gardner. Thank you so much for making the time to chat. I know you have a very full plate, so your time is much appreciated. Happy to be here, John. What I really love about your work, Christopher, is that you cover both the nutritional science, sort of the, the link biologically between health and disease, as well as the behavioral side of it, because telling people what they should eat is really half or even less of the battle. So I'm hoping we can talk a bit about both of those dimensions of your work. Yeah, and I'd be happy to tell you how I pivoted that way later too. So let's start with I guess the big question of, you know, which diet is best, which diet is healthiest. Um, and so I wanted you to, since one of the best trials we have to speak to two of the camps, the low, the low carb, and the low fat, those are two of the most um, well-known camps. So you um, were the lead author on the diet fit study, which came out uh, about two years ago now. And so I wanted you to take us through that because it was such an influential, um, informative study. And what, what did we learn from that? And then we can use that as a launch pad to what else we need to learn and what we've learned since then. It's actually funny to go back to see how it all started. I actually uh, really wanted to get into nutrition to study phytochemicals. And uh, I, was, I was doing garlic studies and other things. And there was a definitive moment when I was presenting my garlic study results and I said, you know, well, how much do you want to know about Allison, the putative active agent? Or go ahead. I just talked for an hour. What do you want to know? And they said, so how much weight can you lose on Atkins versus Zone? And I said, it was garlic talk. <laughs> and then I started to think back that really people were confused about weight loss diets. And no matter what I did, they sort of twisted it into that. So I wrote up a study and got it funded. It was called the A to Z study that was published 13 years ago. And it compared Atkins to Zone to Ornish to a health professional's diet. And in the end, they were all pretty similar. Uh, and I finished the study and I published that. And I was sort of looking at the results in more detail. And I started to see a really interesting thing up here in the literature that said, you know, it looks like people who are more insulin resistant do better on low carb than low fat. And I thought, wow, maybe I could go back to my data set and see if that, oh my gosh, it looks like in my own data set, that appears to have been the case. I didn't design it to test that, but it, it logically could be. And at the same time, somebody else requested getting some genotype data from us. And I was really not into genotype at the time. And I said, sure, here's, it was, it was a little more effort than that, but sure, look. And they said, oh my God, 
we found there's a genotype pattern. There's a multi-locus genotype with three SNPs, and they predict who did better on one than the other. And I said, wow, you know, interesting in the first A to Z study, there was just a few pounds difference on average between all the groups, but there was a huge range of variability in each mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. I think the variability is more interesting than the average differences. Yeah. Why don't I design a new study where we get more people, the first one only had women, this will have men, men. And even though it looks like we're going to test low fat and low carb, we're not. We're actually going to uh, hope that we reproduce the variability mm -hmm. and that we will now very intentionally collect data on genotype and on insulin resistance and do oral glucose tolerance tests instead of just a fasting blood draw. Yeah, yeah. And so all of diet fits was set up to not test low fat versus low carb. It was set up to uh, uh, test effect modification to see if whether knowing you're insulin resistant or sensitive, uh, sorry, not the participants, but us knowing, mm -hmm. or us knowing this genotype pattern that somebody else had found for us mm -hmm. would help differentiate the most from the least yeah. successful people in the yeah. two diets. And this gets into the whole personalization thing, mm -hmm. right? We've got companies coming up saying, give us your poop, give, you, give us your genotype, and we'll tell you what you should be eating. Yeah. And we thought, wow, this would be great. We will contribute to this. Um, mm -hmm. An interesting side story to this is as we set the low carbon, low fat up, we were completely agnostic to which one would win. And it, I wasn't really trying to get one to win versus the other. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, what if, what if neither of them win, but everybody loses 50 pounds, I'll be famous and I'll get the Nobel Prize. So let's try to get everybody to lose as much weight as possible. And we hired these dietitians and said, you guys are going to have to teach these 600 people how to do this. And... I don't want you to feel compromised. You should teach the best low fat and the best low carb you can. And so we all got mm -hmm. together to say what's best low carb and best low fat. They felt very comfortable doing it. Sure enough, at the end of the year, collectively, the 600 people lost more than 6,500 pounds. On average, it was almost identical. So mm -hmm. one group lost basically 11 and a half pounds and one lost almost 13 pounds on average. But within both groups, Somebody lost 60 pounds, somebody gained 20, and those weren't outliers. It was everything in between. It was a total continuum. Yeah. So an 80-pound range of differential response getting the same advice from these fabulous nutrition educators mm -hmm. said, yes, we got exactly the variability that we wanted. And the insulin yeah. resistance did not predict a differential success. And the genotype pattern did not predict a differential success. And so, <laughs> so this study was a success in that they lost yeah. a lot of weight and we learned a lot of stuff and we have gobs of data and we're continuing to look for personalization. But China, the sort of what we walked away with was, wow, you know, when we got the dietitians hooked on this for how they pushed it, we said, okay, I need both groups to eat low refined uh, grains and low added sugar, even low fat. I know that's low fat, but I, that's crappy. And I need both groups to eat a lot of vegetables and low mm -hmm. carbs. Ah, veggies have carbs. No, no, no. Even if you're low carb, we need you to have veggies. Mm -hmm. Don't eat processed packaged food. Try to eat whole foods. And so in the whole paper, we actually didn't even call it low carb and low fat. We called it healthy low carb mm -hmm. and healthy low fat. I, I think maybe what happened, at least to the insulin resistance side, was by doing that, we sort of nullified stuff that people had seen before. Yeah. They said low carb and low fat but they had allowed more refined grain and added sugar on low fat because it is. Mm -hmm. And I think when we did that, 
we took that part away. So the, the take home message people were getting was, ah, you could lose weight on either diet. Um, there's sort of this foundational side of it that everybody should eating, be eating less refined grain and added sugar and more vegetables. And everybody should try to eat whole foods and less processed foods. Mm -hmm. And yet I still haven't answered, there's still the capacity to look at the personalization thing. So I have a bunch of postdocs and colleagues who are looking at poop and the microbiome because yeah. we didn't explain the variability. So I yeah. feel like we answered yeah. one question and as in many studies, we opened up new questions. Yeah. Well, I, I looked um, at some of the critiques and commentaries on that study and one one of them concluded from interviewing a mere four subjects who were kind of on the extremes that it was sort of you know basically adherence and lifestyle factors that influencing adherence that were a big part of it yeah so actually so i walked away with another thing that i would love to try to test um mm -hmm. i do agree that it's adherence uh more along the lines of you know as we're telling people to try different diets if it's something that they won't adhere to in the long run, it's never gonna do them any good, mm -hmm. right? So uh, don't go on a diet if you're gonna go off it. So don't go on a diet at all. In fact, we started call, stopped calling them diets and said, these are eating plans. Mm -hmm. um, the whole design had been try to go to 20 grams of carb or 20 grams of fat in the first eight weeks. We don't even think that's healthy because you're wiping out so many food groups. We just wanna psychologically anchor you and then sort of titrate back up Mm -hmm. to the thing, to the place where you could look us in the eye and say, look, doc, this is the lowest I can go and continue doing this. So that if this still works for me uh, at the end of 12 months, I could keep doing this. I don't mm -hmm. want it to be something that they're like, oh my God, thank God the 12 months are over. Now I can yeah. go off this stupid research diet. No, no, no. If you didn't get to the point where you could continue, then you're too low. Yeah. And so it was fascinating to see how some people had an easier time going lower than others. Mm -hmm. And Chana, an important part of this study design uh, was that there was never a specific caloric restriction. We mm -hmm. never say you weigh this much and you're this active. And so that means you have to cut out 500 calories. Yep. We really said, just focus on cutting that out. And if you are being stoic and you're hungry all the time, you won't be able to maintain that. That is a diet that you would go off. Yeah. And so if that's the case, what I need you to do is eat a little more. And they really did lose 6,500 pounds collectively. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of my take home messages came from reading a paper that came out from the American College of uh, Physicians and the American Heart Association, the Obesity Society. And they had actually looked at tons of diet studies and said, you know, basically you can lose weight on anything yeah. if you adhere to it. And there's a little paragraph in there that I just loved. And it said, it is true that some of the diets imposed a very specific caloric restriction and some achieved a caloric mm -hmm. restriction mm -hmm. without imposing it. And I thought, wait, yes. that's kind of what we did. We didn't yes. actually say how many calories to restrict. So I wonder if the thing is one step beyond adherence. I wonder if it's satiety. Yeah. What if some people were more satiated on a low carb and some were more satiated on a low fat. And let me frame it to you this way and see if this mm -hmm. resonates with you or the listeners. Picture two breakfasts. Picture steel-cut oats with berries on it and some low-fat milk. And picture cheesy eggs. Let's make it a cheesy egg omelet so we get some veggies in there. So one's full of fat and protein and some veggies. And one mm -hmm. is just all bulky grains and some mm -hmm. berries. And mm -hmm. 
do that to 20 people in sort of a crossover fashion and then see how hungry they are hours and hours yeah. later. I'm almost sure you would find a couple people on the oats. You said, oh, oh my God, that oatmeal, that was super. Oh my God, I'm so full. I, I'm, I'm just not gonna eat for hours. And somebody else would say, you know that those oats I had a half an hour ago? I'm hungry again already. And on the flip side, somebody would have this cheesy egg omelet and somebody would say, oh my God, this thing is so rich. You gave me a portion that was too big. I don't think I can finish the portion that you gave me. Mm-hmm. And somebody else would say, oh my God, that was marvelous. Can I have a second? Yeah. And so I'm yeah. thinking that there's yeah. something involved there. I think there's some personalization mm-hmm. in satiety so that if you did sort of go for this, what I call a foundation diet of uh, lots of veggies, low added sugar and refined grain, lots of whole foods, lots of processed foods, uh, sorry, minimal processed foods, you could have a high fat, low carb or a low carb, sorry, low, the other one. You could have both and you would find people after you personalize that, that after they got the foundation right, I'm really into getting the foundation part right, um, you could biohack your way to satiety and you'd be happier with fewer calories. How's that sound? Mm-hmm. That satiety has been one of the topics I've been exploring a little bit these last few months as well. And, you know, people repeat this, people fixate, I think, too much on the macronutrient side of it and this this sort of hierarchy of, of macronutrient satiety. And, you know, protein is the most satiating nutrient. Oh, no, it's fat is we need fat to be satiated. We need this. And it's 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 so inter- individual. And so many other factors are just as important, like the fiber, for, for example, um, and the volume of the food, which and then the mental part that we're going to talk about later. And, you know, I know a lot of people who say I can't be satisfied on a salad. And to them, I say, well, that's because you tell yourself you can't be satisfied on a salad. A salad, it doesn't equal a meal, right? There's a huge mental yep. component. Well, and for me, a salad, so a salad's one of my go-tos all the time, except mm-hmm. my salad has a bed of mixed greens and a bunch of veggies, but then it has nuts yeah. and it has avocados and it could have tofu or tempeh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's got olive oil all over the top. And so it could be a high fat salad or a low fat salad. Yeah. It could be a higher protein or a lower protein. I got garbanzos and pinto beans on it. And so my, my salad's more like a meal. Yeah, sure. no, I, I love but my super salads too. In the same way, yeah. I think I think it is important to highlight something you spoke about in terms of calories because there's a lot of confusion about you know how much calories are the driver of weight loss or you know is it the macronutrient mix that matters. So I think your um, trial reinforces the messages that I've seen in the meta analyses is that calories are in fact one of the biggest are the primary driver in predicting weight loss. Um, but for predicting adherence, it's all about fit with you and your personal satiety and and other notions of what satisfying meal is. Yep. And sadly, you know, I had had one person write me in the, not involved with this study at all, said, oh, I heard you're doing the genotype study. I hope when you're done, I can get genotype. Tried every diet under the sun and none of them worked for me. But if if you let me and tell me one, I'll be all set. And I I wrote back and said, if you've tried every diet in under the sun, then you already tried the one that's right for your genotype. Mm-hmm. I don't have new diets. Mm-hmm. I said a genotype thing that might tell you which one that worked. If you already tried them all, you would already know which one that worked. Yeah. And so if none of them work, it's not a genotype thing. It's not that kind of predisposition. And we yeah. know how many there's stressful issues and comfort foods and, and lots of dynamics mm-hmm. other than just calories, yeah. as yeah. you're saying. So much more goes into it. 
So why, but why do you think that people naturally, I, I read that your people naturally consumed on average 500 fewer calories. Why do you think they were naturally consuming fewer calories when they chose, when they followed those fundamentals? Well, so that's, so because, especially when we started the diets out in such an extreme way, there's a whole bunch of stuff you couldn't eat. So if it's really low fat or really low carb, you just agree not to eat. You just tell yourself, well, I'm not allowed to eat that. Mm -hmm. And so you might actually be hungry. So picture being on low carb and you just had some cheesy eggs and some avocados and something else. And I said, do you want another half an avocado? No. Do you want a piece of bread? Yeah, but I can't have bread. And so I'm not hungry. Yeah. I think that's what happens, right? So, and if low carb, this, the low fat the same way. What I really want now is some cheese. Do you want yeah. another piece of bread and some more green salad with lemon squeezed on top? No, not that. I had enough of that. I really yeah. want some cheese, uh, but I can't. And so I'm not yeah. hungry. Yeah. I actually read once, uh, again, I, I'm not going to say this is a fact, but I read that people, again, if you if you have a meal that has you know 10 different parts that go to a buffet, you're just going to overeat more because you kind of want to sample everything. You, you get bored of the same thing. And yeah. so you're not eating for that sort of right. novelty factor. Yeah, we did an experiment with some kids in my class one time where we sort of put um, an ounce of cheese on every desk and a little baby carrot on every desk. And we said, okay, so now start walking around the room and take the carrot. How's that first carrot? Pretty good. How's the second carrot? Pretty good. How's the third carrot? Yeah, not so good. How's the fourth carrot? Yeah, now I'm a okay, now do it with the cheese. Ah, cheese is fabulous. How about the third and fourth and seventh cheese? Yeah, no. I've had enough cheese right now. If you gave me something else, I'd be hungry. Yeah. But the palatability yeah. runs out quickly. That's why uh, David Kessler's book, The End of Overeating, was fascinating, hmm. where the chapters are named. This is the fat and sugar chapter. This is the fat, sugar, fat, salt chapter. This is the fat, salt, sugar, fat, fat, salt, sugar chapter. And it was all about the food industry um, overlaying complex flavors on top of each other to keep hmm. you not right. being satiated yet that right. was fascinating right and so we've actually had a bunch of researchers going back and looking at various things and i, I will say that uh we have a couple of clues um two of them have to seem to be resting energy expenditure or respiratory quotient mm -hmm. so uh we had we were trying to figure out what everybody's caloric expenditure was so I don't know how many of your readers know what a metabolic cart does, where you put a mask on, you wake up first thing in the morning before you've had a lot of energy expenditure and you lie down and they put this mask on and it measures oxygen that you're taking in and CO2 that you're putting out. Mm -hmm. And you can do a calculation and figure out what your resting metabolic rate is or basal mm -hmm. metabolic rate called different things. At the same time, it also figures out if you know how much O2 is going in and CO2 is going out, it tells you how much carbohydrate versus fat you're burning at that moment. That's called respiratory yep. quotient. And so we've actually had a set of postdocs and even an undergraduate doing an honors project that found that baseline differences in the resting energy expenditure and the respiratory quotient were somewhat helpful in predicting who did better on low carb and low fat. So just to make it sound a little more intuitive, if you were just naturally more of a fat burner than a carbohydrate burner, and you got assigned to one diet versus another, it might make a difference. And that, that was mm. never in the design, mm. but because we have a lot of data on things like that, we can pursue other angles. So the resting energy expenditure and the respiratory quotient so far yeah. have been little added pieces to the puzzle that look interesting. 
Yeah. How sensitive is respiratory quotient to your previous meal? So how much does it reflect what you just happen to have chosen to eat the previous day? Well, that's why you have to do it before you've eaten anything. And so a number of investigators, and I really appreciate that they do this, say, you know, really, we're all doing this fasting stuff in the morning um, so that we're standardizing what we're looking at. But most people spend their day postprandial. Most people mm-hmm. are in a postive state for most of the day. Yeah. So you might be leading people astray oh, no. if you're really only talking about that uh, first thing in the morning. So are you saying it's not fully representative of how of how they might not be a representative data point because that's not how they're spending the the next twelve hours? Right. Or, so it's interesting yeah. that we have this, but how much? So your point was a good one. That well. So how is that reflective of your last meal? Mm-hmm. So the respiratory quotient or the oxygen and carbohydrate exchange. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be, you would mess it up if you started having a meal. And you are, you're eating different meals during the day. And mm-hmm. so we'd have mm-hmm. to look further into it to capture that. Mm-hmm. It's it's the area of the metabolic alterations. And, you know, there's, I'm sure you know, there's this um, argument that one of the benefits of low carb is that you don't suffer metabolic, you suffer less of a metabolic slowdown during caloric restriction. And we looked at that, actually. Mm-hmm. So because we have this, um, and at six months, the decrease with the weight loss was identical. It was yeah. absolutely identical in the two diets. And when you went out to 12 months, it wasn't absolutely identical, but it was a, it was statistically identical. Mm-hmm. So that didn't happen, again, maybe because we did this healthy low carb and healthy low fat yeah. instead of otherwise. What did you learn about successful weight loss maintenance? I have to say we're really pleased. I, I know a bunch of graphics that I've looked at where you can watch weight go down to six months and then it just starts yeah. popping back up. Yeah. So for the most part, they lost weight to six months and it was pretty stable after that. Wow. There was a little recidivism, but our, yeah. our six to 12 month data are quite similar. So I really, and I really think that had to do with the approach that we had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we weren't kicking anybody out. We weren't trying to make them be overly stoic. We said, look, if you haven't reached this point yet of equilibrium yeah. where you're okay with it, yeah. then you're not done. And so yeah. I really think they got most of their diet changes in three months, and then they tweaked it more at six months. And then from six to 12, they were pretty stable. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that people were naturally eating less without feeling like they were on a diet? And and so you were suggesting it was because they were excluding the foods that they were less interested yeah. in, in eating just for the sake of eating because the novelty factor Um uh, or yeah. just there's also this argument that you're just excluding the foods that you normally might have overeaten on, yeah. so they're, which are related. Yes, that. Yeah. So if, for any of these things, like if you're doing intermittent fasting, oh, my God, I'm losing weight on intermittent fasting. Yes, because you skipped a meal every mm-hmm. day and mm-hmm. you sort of, you know, we have the capacity to override our hunger. Some yeah. of us think, oh, my God, I'll just be a wreck if I don't eat. But yes, remember that day when life was really busy and you couldn't stop for lunch? or you didn't have yes. time for breakfast. And initially you were kind of messed up, but an hour later you sort of forgot. Completely, I try. I had to try it myself. Everyone else is trying it. And I, I thought I was so scared of being hungry to not eat for a day. And I was, it's like, yeah, I've seen this ama- beautiful graph. It's like, you think you're just gonna go up and up and up and then explode, but actually you kind of go up and yeah. up and up and then it actually goes back down. And then, you know, it's, you just gotta keep, and I've never distraction is key. An, I've never done intermittent fasting, but twice I just tried fasting for three days. And uh, like I was complete, really only like water hungry. fasting? Yeah, just water. I had nothing wow. for three days. And uh, 
By the time I woke up the second day, it's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to eat today. I wonder if I can do that tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not going to eat today either. And then I was, it's a, it's amazing how you can override it. So is it yeah. appetite yeah. or is it hunger? Yeah, no, I think for me, a, a big part of it is just eating is pleasurable. And, and my, my husband tried it with me too. And he said, it's a joyless day when you don't have food. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. You need some more oh. joy in your life. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, China, that's one of my things. So in a lot of the talks that I give now, I'm really frustrated that um, a lot of nutrition has taken the joy mm. out of food. It's like yeah. it's a chore and let's mm. do this and let's avoid that and do the other thing. And we, we really kind of forgot about joy and pleasure and deliciousness. And so mm -hmm. another thing we tried to stress in the studies you have food that you're eating. If yeah. you don't like it, not you gotta like it personally and it's gotta work socially. Again, it's gonna work for you long term. Yeah. There is another piece of work that I thought was related to you um, with regards to how the food is labeled influencing people's choices. Oh. <laughs> okay, so and that's the way another that the really way that the label fun. healthy can backfire, kind of. Yeah. Okay, so there's another fun. So it's completely in line with this. Mm -hmm. So we actually have a collaborative with 60 universities that we call the Menus of Change University Research Collaborative. And it all got started uh, with a group called Menus of Change that was a collaboration between Harvard and the Culinary Institute of America, where the target audience was, for the most part, the food industry. They generated 24 principles as part of the scientific advisory board that got these principles going. 12 of them, 12 of the principles are more operational and 12 of them are more nutritional. But as a set, they're supposed to say, here's the way we would maximize human health and the environment and make money and food would be delicious. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what menus of change is. And then we thought, wow, maybe we could make this into a research opportunity and take these principles and apply them to um, institutional food in universities. Mm -hmm. What if we try to implement the principles of the menus of change there and so one of the principles is deliciousness mm -hmm. and so we we partnered up with a psychologist named ali crumb who's fabulous she studies mindsets and with a linguist named dan jirafsky and he thinks about food words and so during one quarter stanford university rotates about 17 different vegetables uh, in the course of a quarter and uh, they go through multiple times in the same quarter and so came up with different names for each one we came up with a basic name, an absence of a vilified nutrient, presence of a glorified nutrient, or indulgent. And so as a quick example, you could have basic carrots, you could have low sodium carrots, mm -hmm. absence of vilified, you could have high fiber carrots, presence of glorified, mm -hmm. we could have twisted citrus glazed carrots. Mm -hmm. However, we never changed the recipe. The recipe was always the same. The only thing that changed was the label above the thing. So we actually did that and we saw an impact at Stanford's dining hall, and then we replicated it in five other universities. It just got published about a year ago in Psychological Science. And so what you were referring to as the results was sort of the stunning and somewhat disappointing, but maybe not unexpected finding that when, they, when we labeled it as indulgent, yeah. um, they took more servings. Don't you want to have mm -hmm. twisted citrus glazed carrots as opposed to basic? But when we said low sodium or high fiber carrots, they took less than if we just called them carrots. Ah, and this is like, this is what we've done as a public mm -hmm. health community mm -hmm. is we have made it sound like the healthy things taste worse. Yes. I think. And they don't, they don't have to. And that's why it's really been fun working with chefs 
to try to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found in the study was labeling it as healthy was a deterrent and labeling it as something indulgent was a promotion. You know, that's kind of intuitive. Yes, that's what we find. So as another component of stealth nutrition, one aspect is not going to solve the whole problem. But if you want people to eat more veggies, just have a little more fun with the words. Stanford actually, or this group, made a toolkit called Edgy Veggies. And the Edgy Veggie Toolkit is available on our Menus of Change University Research Collaborative website. And it just says, here's some ideas for naming Mm -hmm. things in an edgy Mm -hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It'll get people to eat more veggies. Yes, that has been a fun aspect of stealth nutrition. I think it's super impactful for parents because, I mean, the party line is eat your veggies, they're healthy, right? Like it's a chore. Yeah. yeah. Here's the raw broccoli floret. Choke this thing down, whether you yeah. like it or not. Yeah. No, steam them and have slivered almonds on them and drizzle some olive oil on them and maybe mm-hmm. dot that with balsamic vinegar and include it on a bed of ancient grains and global cuisine and Moroccan spices. And you could have way more fun Yeah. than eat your veggies. Yeah. yeah. My kids eat a lot of veggies. My What I do, I haven't gotten quite as colorful with your names, but I do always talk about it in terms of a choice, like which veggie would you like today? And I have a few options because they do. I mean, we have different preferences and tastes too. Having three kids, I see that in spades. Still still lots of wiggle room there. Lots of things to learn and work on. So yeah, I'm trying to do controlled nutrition intervention trials mm-hmm. and then be really open-minded to beha- different behavioral mm-hmm. approaches mm-hmm. to get them to try it and to maintain it and to sustain it. So we've been having some fun here. Yeah. Well, we should wrap up, but I want to ask you a couple questions to to close off. One is, what would you say to someone, and you probably hear this yourself, that says, I ignore the healthy eating advice, you know, from the food guide or whatever. I, I ignore all the healthy eating advice in the media because it always changes. So I just can't believe anything that I hear anymore. So I just do what I want because, it, again, the advice keeps changing. So having been in the field of nutritional science, Again, how do you know what to believe and, and, and how do you sort of def- defend the field maybe in fact that in that uh, things will evolve? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to do a little bit of my part along those lines. I'm trying to write a book hmm. and the book is called It, it Depends. And <laughs> the whole point of It Depends is if you put it in context, we don't really differ that much. Um, it might, the, the, the soundbite in the headline might say it works today and it doesn't work tomorrow. And if you look at the dose and the population and the circumstance and the duration, you could say, ah, it could actually be yes and no. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. yes or no. It would mm-hmm. be yes in this situation and no in this one. Yeah. And you, you're not being, you just put a little more effort into seeing the yeah. different situations here yeah. and it won't be as contradictory. So I'm trying to have fun in my It Depends book and say, look, here's sort of the chemical composition of the food. And here's the cultural habits that go on with eating this food. And here's the environmental impact. And here's the animal rights and welfare impact. And here's the economic impact. And so it depends on what your priority is. And if if you know what your own priorities are, you will find that we agree much more than we disagree. And part of the way that I build on that is I actually helped this Menus of Change group, the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association with some of their dietary guidelines. I've never done the dietary guidelines for Americans, but given how much sounds controversial, 
every time I work with those three groups, I'm really stunned how much as a group we agree mm -hmm. and we come to consensus quickly. It's like, mm -hmm. if we can agree so much, why do all these people think we disagree? And I know why it is, because we get all the studies in front of us and we say, oh, yes, in that context, it's true, but in the other context, it's not. Mm -hmm. And when that just becomes a sound bite of a macronutrient or a single food or a single yeah. nutrient, it's really yeah. easy to say, ah, I found an example of yeah. yes and no. When in yeah. fact, it, that's not necessarily contradictory. So that's yeah. how I try to handle that one. So I wanted to ask, um, maybe in closing, Again, I think when people talk about healthy eating, they often say it's simple but not easy. So what would be one of your top tips for making it actually happen for you, you know, to, to make it easier and sort of a voluntary thing to do what is best for your body? Yeah. So I guess my tip there is look for the, we, we all have something that we think is probably the worst for us and the thing we, the thing we eat the most often. So it'll be the biggest impact if you replace that. Yeah. Um, I have a colleague who did something like this and said, don't try one thing and then quit if it doesn't work. Try five things and see if you can replace it. And it can't mm -hmm. just be replaced with something that's, that you like almost as much. It has to be something that you like. So put a little work into it and replace it. And then the thing that's the second in that list of it's probably the worst for you and you eat it the most often. So be, mm -hmm. be you know very intentional about these things. And then look for things that are easy. So like one of our things at our house that we love is just a baked head of cauliflower. Mm, we just yeah. cut it up, it's super fast. Yeah. We put some oil on it and put some turmeric and cumin yeah. or some fun spices, throw it in the yeah. toaster oven and half an hour later, we can eat a whole head of cauliflower. Avocado toast. I'm teaching yeah. a human nutrition class and we had an avocado toast contest. And we said, what do you put on your avocado mm -hmm. toast? And it was fascinating to see all the things that people put on avocado toast. We talked about a really good whole grain bread and some veggies on top of the avocado or some mm -hmm. herbs and spices. Mm -hmm. And so some of these things can be fairly quick and easy. So personally, I have not a cookbook. I just have a three ring grinder. And uh, I've always kind of found that when I get a cookbook, I have one or two favorite recipes from the cookbook, but not hundreds. Mm -hmm. And so I just photocopy the one or I, I get something online and I print it out. And so now I just have a little three ring grinder with 15 or 20 recipes that are my favorites. Easy to find the ingredients, fairly yeah. quick to cook. Everybody yeah. always loves them when I make them. Yeah. And so, and I'm not pushing myself to do that all at once. That was developed over years. Mm -hmm. So be mm -hmm. kind to yourself that you can't make, can't make huge changes all at once, but you have, you have years and years to go. So over time, just start tweaking it, making it a little better and a little better. I, I'm 60 years old. I find at times I'll still change something in my mm -hmm. diet. I, I completely agree that I see a lot of people who know what they should be, what know what's how they're sabotaging themselves, but continue to do it. And often, unfortunately, these things come from, you know, they're being almost thrust upon you. It's like the cookie, like at Genentech, the cookies, they're insane, you know, and then you go to every meeting has this massive cookie platter. And, you know, then next thing you know, you've got the Genen 10. Uh, so these, yeah. but they're just, they're just, um, so I think your food environment is, is such a, such an important part of it. So I have a fun yeah. intervention there. I've been working with Stanford catering and, you know, I found out that the admins who order catering food for meetings hate ordering for meetings. They get this huge catering menu list and if they do it right, nobody says anything. And if they yeah. do it wrong, everybody complains hmm. and they just, there's like no win to be this admin. 
So I started working with catering and they are, have sort of embraced these menus of change principles. Ah. And I said, okay, we're not going to order off the catering menu. Bring me something and expect that somebody's going to be gluten-free and somebody's going to be paleo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have some fabulous tasting food. And you know what came in this week that's fresh. And so they'll make me, for example, a soup that's vegan. And if you wanted to put bacon bits on it, you could. But the bacon mm. bits would have come from pasture-raised pigs, right? And they've got a salad and there's something you could add on the side. And you could have it or not. And um, I found my colleagues say, oh, my God, where did you get this food? Who's the new caterer? And I said, it's just Stanford Dining. I said, no way. They have the Mediterranean platter or the Latin American platter or the cheesy sandwiches. I said, no, 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 they're chefs. They'll just make this food. The reason they make the other one is because that's the default. The admin says, oh, everybody's going to want cookies and everybody's going to want a dessert and everybody's going to want this other. When in fact, they didn't ask them. They -hmm. just got complaints before. And so if the norm is just this is what they brought, um, one of my favorite desserts, in fact, came from Walter Willett. It's called Three Pleasures. Mm. It's dark chocolate and nuts and fruit. Mm. And so the caterers used to bring some dessert because they thought, oh, yeah, everybody wants dessert. And it turns out not everybody does want dessert at lunch. And they were bringing yeah. big cakes with big slices or big cookies. Yeah. And now you take a little bit of dark chocolate, a couple of nuts, and a little bit of fruit, as much as you want or none. And so it's been really fun mm-hmm. working with them on that for some of these catered events. And I've had a fabulous response from the people saying, oh, my God, how would you get this? What special thing did you do? I said, in fact, I did less than usual. I just said 20 bucks per head and 20 people. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Bring food. Mm-hmm. That, that dessert sounds awesome. That's what I actually usually my go to when, when I'm at home and I feel like having something sweet after the kids are in bed. So. I think that's it. that's it for time. We talked longer than I intended to. So thank you for being generous with your time and sharing so many insights after you know a two-decade career. And it uh, looks like you're going strong. Still working on it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, right. stay Thanks healthy and um, yeah, and enjoy those veggies. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Chana. Okay. Best Take for you and the kids her. and the husband. Thanks. Stay safe Bye. and healthy. Bye. You too.